Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that, <clears throat> that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked to leave yeah, leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all that the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, he is well disposed toward David. Shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord... Do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you, and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I might not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. 
Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go, find the arrows. I say to the boy, Look, and the arrows are on this, this side of you. Take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is, for safe, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter at which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, Something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked to leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. And Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor the kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered, answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave him his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Thank you, Darlene.
We remember together once again on this Lord's Day that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's ask his help as we look at this passage together. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that you have given. Lord, even as Jesus promised his disciples that he would not leave them as orphans, but when he returned to the right hand of the Father, he would send his Holy Spirit upon them and clothe them with power. And Lord, we know that that was fulfilled at Pentecost. And today we also receive the blessing of your spirit as we are born again and brought into your kingdom. And so we trust as we look at your word with a heart willing to receive it and to humble ourselves before you, that you would illuminate it to our minds, Lord, that you would apply these truths and principles that we see working even in the lives of Jonathan and David, Lord, of of covenant faithfulness, and Lord, that ultimately we know points us to you, the covenant-keeping God. And so we pray that your people would be strengthened with good food, Lord, and that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, uh, our Lord and our God. And I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So again, we come to a passage of Scripture that is one of those passages that makes its way into many of the children's storybooks. And I'm sure if you've grown up around the the Bible and in church that you've probably seen the story of Jonathan and David making this plan of how to warn David of potential danger and him shooting the arrows out into the field and and them departing ways realizing that uh, David's life is indeed in danger. But really what is uh, going on here is what we want to try and get to the very center and heart of what is exactly unfolding in this passage and so the the title this morning is refuge in covenant faithfulness refuge in covenant faithfulness and it's interesting our own culture that we live in it's no secret that our culture uh, world around us equates rules and guidelines as restrictive as oppressive and ours is the day that thinks true freedom is found in limitless and unrestrained desire and that if we can live without restriction without any self-control and just kind of chase after whatever our imaginations can conjure up that is true freedom of course we are watching now that that's not freedom it's actually bondage and results in further and further degrees of chaos and i think in many ways for christians we sometimes think of the notion as covenant as also maybe restrictive or old-fashioned we don't uh, at least uh, in many circles, you don't hear a lot about covenants. And of course, you know, in our group, we enjoy talking about the, the covenants of God and the beauty of it. And in many ways, I think in David's experience here, we must see at the center is this place of covenant faithfulness as a place of refuge, of stability, of life for David. Jonathan should have been his mortal enemy the rival for the throne, the prince of Israel, and David seen as a sort of usurper. And yet because of the covenant of the Lord in which they had established, David actually finds in Jonathan a refuge, a deliverer even, if you will. 
And so, of course, we look at the immediate context as between Jonathan and David, but certainly there's more going on here as we think about the the grand themes of Scripture and even as we've worked through the covenants of God and and seen how God is a covenant-keeping God. And at the center of his relation to, to mankind is a covenant, a covenant that was even founded before the foundations of the earth between the triune God, the Father purposing to give to the Son a people, the Spirit covenanting to to apply and and bring about the fulfillment of Christ's work and that unfolding through history. We see covenant as so central. So refuge in covenant faithfulness. And of course, last week we looked at the hostility against David really increasing from the mountaintop experience of, of defeating Goliath and Israel being delivered once again from the Philistines. Then we saw quickly as the people began to cheer Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands Saul becomes extremely jealous and extremely angry and perhaps even the words of Samuel ringing in his ear that God has taken the kingdom from you Saul and he has given it to someone a neighbor who is better than you and Saul begins to hear David his ten thousands better than you and Saul begins to rage against David and seeks to take his life and we looked last week at the attempts against David's life and how God delivered him from those and we see many parallels in how God continually delivers his servant and so this morning uh, I want to consider this idea of refuge in covenant to get together David, obviously, at the beginning of the chapter here, is coming to Jonathan as a desperate man. Where else is David going to turn? He has been considered an enemy of the king. He is becoming something of an outlaw. And he finds refuge in this covenant that was established with Jonathan. We saw it in in 18 as David... uh, introduces himself and identifies himself. Jonathan's soul, we're told, was knit to the soul of David. He loved him as his own soul. And we're told in verse 3 of 18, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And they formed this covenant, which seems to be a covenant to protect, to look out for one another, to have one another's back no matter what happens. And Jonathan gives David his cloak and his armor and his sword and his belt as though this transfer of recognition that this is the man of God's choosing. So though Jonathan should have been a mortal enemy of David because of the covenant with which that they've established, Jonathan is now a place of refuge and of deliverance for David. And at the very center of this idea of covenant is a Hebrew word, uh, chesed. Now, I am not a Hebrew scholar, as you, as you already know, and uh, say my Hebrew is something like a, a good politician. It's uh, few and far between. <laughs> but, um, but there are a few Hebrew words that it's very good to know. And, and um, if you want to pretend to know Hebrew, you just have to learn to kind of make that nasally sound in your throat, that <laughs> sound. And, uh, and so chesed is, uh, I think, how they would pronounce it. Uh, I thought maybe you could try that with me so I don't feel like the, uh, the weirdo up here. Chesed. And, uh, and that is a, a very interesting uh, and, and beautiful Hebrew word. 
that we find throughout the Old Testament. And what's very interesting is in the book of 1 Samuel, this particular word has only shown up once before when there was the comment um, about the, those that had been kind and dealt in kindly to Israel. The other three times this word shows up here is actually all in this chapter, chapter 20, in regards to David's commitment to Jonathan and Jonathan's commitment to David. And this word is at times used between the relationship of, of humans. So it can be a picture of, of love and faithfulness between humans, as we see here. But oftentimes this word is used in regards to God's love towards mankind. Even the Psalm David opened up with, we, we saw that phrase, steadfast love. That would be a very common way to see chesed translated in the Old Testament. It is a picture of of steadfast, faithful, covenant love, a love that is loyal and committed. It's not simply an emotion that one feels, but it is this covenantal picture of love. And this is what is coming up again and again in this this passage. Um, Specifically, we see the word used in verse 8 as David Pleads with Jonathan to deal kindly with him. Deal chesed with your servant is what David is asking. And then in 14, again, we see the word used. um, Show me the steadfast love of the Lord. So show me chesed is what he is asking. And then again in 15, we see the the same word used as well. Um, Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. And we see this word used, for example, you'll recognize some of these uses um, in, the, in the Old Testament. Remember when, and children will remember this as well, Jonah has, was sent to go and warn the city of Nineveh of the coming judgment of God. And, and at the end of Jonah, we're actually given insight as to why was Jonah so resistant to going? We, we tend to think that he was afraid of the Ninevites and what they might do to him. But listen to what Jonah says is actually the reason why he doesn't want to go. In Jonah 4.2, he says, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And there you hear the same word, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, Jonah says, for it is better than for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, of course, Jonah, do you really do well to, to be angry? Jonah, because of his burning hatred for these people and what they had done to the people of Israel previously, he says, I don't want to go preach the gospel because I don't want to see the God who is filled with steadfast love set his mercy upon them. I want justice. I want vengeance. But he knew God was a God of steadfast love. Or even Lamentations, we have 3.22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Or this one we know as well. Psalm 23.6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And the word mercy is the same Hebrew word chesed. And this is the steadfast love of the Lord is, is set upon his people. It's actually pursuing his people all the days of their life. And this is at the heart of this chapter. This covenantal love 
that is being expressed between David and Jonathan. And what's really fascinating as we consider this is that the, the, the covenant love, this word has said that is being expressed between David and Jonathan in the form of covenant, that it is received as a blessing, but it also produces a response. David and Jonathan both are recipients of this blessing and the covenant love, and yet they also respond to it in like manner. So you see that dual uh, way in which it, it works. And this is something we see as well in the gracious covenant that God has established with us. As we are recipients of his steadfast love, then we are to respond back unto God with steadfast and loyal love. And I think love and loyalty have really helped to kind of capture, I think, the the essence of of what's happening here. There is the receiving of it, and then there is the, the giving back of it. But it is a covenantal framework. So... This morning, then, I just want to try and use what time we have remaining here to see that the Lord's covenant is marked by love and loyalty, and then members both receive and respond to that. The Lord's covenant is marked by love and loyalty, and so the members of the covenant receive and respond to that that covenant love and faithfulness. So we could ask the question, well, what are the blessings and responses we see to the Lord's covenant here? What are these blessings and responses to this chesed or this covenant faithfulness? Well, first of all, we see there is a surpassing love and loyalty that is displayed between David and Jonathan. A surpassing love and loyalty that is actually quite shocking as we think about it, especially in light of of, of ancient history. If you know uh, anything about not just biblical history, but ancient history, One of the first things a new king would do when he took the throne was to go and wipe out all of the remnants of the previous king. Their families, their wives, their children, maybe even their animals, their land. They they would just decimate completely any remnant of a former king. And in this way, they are establishing their kingdom. And what's so shocking about this covenant faithfulness that we see displayed here is for Jonathan, it's a surpassing love and loyalty. It surpasses any earthly allegiance that would have made sense for Jonathan. And we see the rebuke of Saul there as well, really rebuking Jonathan for forsaking what was his birthright. All others become secondary to this covenant love and faithfulness. Jonathan should have, by any human reasoning, aligned himself with his father and sought the life of David. But we see there in verse 4 that Jonathan tells David, whatever you say, I'll do for you, David. And of course, they come up with this plan that, that Jonathan will function something as a mediator. He will go before the king and they have established this test. Well, well David will be missing and, and Saul's reaction to his absence will tell them something of where his intention is. And we we understand the the, the test well enough. But don't miss the fact that because of this covenant faithfulness, Jonathan sets aside his earthly allegiances, even that of blood, his own flesh and blood. He's willing to set that aside and hold fast to his commitment to David, the Lord's anointed. And we see also in verse 9, because of this surpassing Love and loyalty, there's a transparency that unfolds. Jonathan tells David, even if the king, which Jonathan is hoping not, Jonathan's 
no doubt hoping that this, the vow that Saul made in, in 1906 there, Saul vowed by invoking the name of the Lord that Jonathan, or the, sorry, that David would not be put to death. And I think Jonathan's still hoping his dad would honor that vow. But Jonathan, Jonathan says, even if my father's intention is to kill you, David, I vow I will let you know. I will warn you so you can flee. There is this transparency because of this surpassing love and loyalty that he has. Even in verse 16, notice um, what Derlin read there for us. Not only is he showing this loyalty to David, but he even invokes precatory prayers down upon the enemies of David in verse 16. May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And so this is incredible that, that this sort of Reversal in Jonathan's allegiance because of this covenant faithfulness would take place. And we, of course, see the same principle picked up throughout the scriptures. For those who are called to follow Christ, Jesus would tell his disciples in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Jesus demands a surpassing loyalty of his servants because of the covenant love and faithfulness with which he has set upon us. And we see this principle that those who are members of the covenant are loyal and committed, even willing to set aside all other loyalties. Perhaps most shocking in Luke 14, Jesus would even say that unless you hate father and mother and follow after me, you cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, Jesus, we just, you know, talking to the children to honor father and mother, to love and obey them. Now Jesus is saying, hey, father and mother, what, what is Jesus talking about? Essentially, it's that, that it, from the outside looking in, your loyalty to Christ should almost be perceived by somebody looking as hatred for family. There should be that sort of surpassing loyalty to Christ and to his cause. And I know many of you have, have stood at that crossroad where you are trying to hold fast to the word of God, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on this side, family is telling you, you're wrong, that's dangerous, don't go down that road. I think you need to listen to what we're saying. And you have to choose in those moments, am I going to hold fast to the loyalty that, that I believe God has revealed and has established in his covenant? Or am I going to go along with mom and dad or brother and sister or grandpa and grandpa that, that our allegiance Allegiance to Christ surpasses all other allegiances. Some of you may have heard the incredible story of the young woman Perpetua, a young woman who lived in the third century in Carthage, which was the great rival of ancient Rome. And of course, Rome eventually won great victory over Hannibal and his war elephants. And anyways, I'll go into <laughs> Roman history. But um, Perpetua lived in Carthage and we're not exactly sure a lot about how she came to Christ, but she came from, it seems, a wealthy family, uh, a family that was very well respected. And at different times, her father would come to her and plead with her to renounce her Christian faith because it had landed her in prison. And there was the threat of execution if she would not recant, if she would not offer the incense to, to the, the leaders to, to pay homage and Perpetua refused, even though she was a young 
mother expecting. And she had a husband and a young family. And her family was telling her, Perpetua, set this aside. This is not worth dying for. You don't have to stand your ground on this issue. And there's a description of her standing before the, at the town hall for public interrogation. Where it says a crowd soon gathered. They're, they're, uh, they were questioned one by one, her and the other Christians who had professed faith in Christ. And when her turn came, her father um, stepped to the front of the crowd, holding her infant son, and cries out to Perpetua, Have pity on your baby, he cried. And the procurator uh, of, in charge of the command said to Perpetua to offer sacrifice for the well-being of the emperors. He wanted him to pay homage to the emperors. And she said, I will not. Perpetua answered and they asked, are you a Christian? And she said, I am. And then they ordered her father to be beaten with rods, even though the elderly man had come to convince her to abandon Christianity. And she had to watch as her own father was was beaten. And finally, they condemned the prisoners to be thrown into an arena with wild beasts at the upcoming birthday of the emperor's son. And they're taken back down to the dungeon. Um, she would ask for her, her, her nursing child to remain with her, and her father would refuse to let her have her son with her. And Perpetua would go into the arena and die with the other Christians, unwilling to forsake her allegiance to Christ at such a cost. You see, when we enter into this sort of covenant faithfulness that God has set upon us, it is a surpassing loyalty and love. And perhaps we won't be asked to stand in an arena with wild animals and give our life or have to watch loved ones tortured in order to bring about our own recanting of the faith, but every day we do make decisions in a thousand ways of of where do our priorities lie? Where is our allegiance? Whether it's what we do with our time, with our resources, being here on Sunday morning, I I know it's a sacrifice. Gathering together as as saints, it, it, it takes a commitment. It takes a priority. Maybe at the workplace, you're tempted to compromise, to, to stay in good graces with your, your boss or to make a little extra income. And we have to continually tell ourselves, no, my allegiance is to Christ and I will hold fast to him. There should be a sense in which your life looks foolish to a watching world. But we see here not only in this interaction a surpassing love and loyalty, but also a sacrificial love and loyalty that is displayed in this covenant picture of David and Jonathan. A tremendous sacrifice for Jonathan. He, he stands at the crossroads of whether he will inherit the throne as the prince of Israel or will he forsake that and hand everything over to David, his sworn enemy. And we see even the picture in uh, verse 27 to 29 there, of course, as Jonathan does as David asks him and they put forth this test before Saul. We have this, this intense reaction from Saul against his own son, against his own flesh and blood. And you could imagine how humiliating that would have been for Jonathan. And we're told that uh, 
Jonathan there in verse 30, his anger, or sorry, Saul's anger was kindled against him, called him the son of a perverse and rebellious mom, um, woman, that you not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, to the shame of your mother's nakedness. Not only is he, not only is he rebuking Jonathan, but now he's brought his mom into the picture. I mean, you don't bring someone's mom into this as well. I was like, dude, insult my mom and you insulted me and you called me basically an illegitimate child and that I'm going to be the, the cause of my own family's shame and downfall. And then Jonathan uh, watches his dad pick up the same spear he hurled at David and hurl it now at Jonathan trying to pin him to the wall. An incredible picture of sacrifice on Jonathan's part for the sake of the covenant faithfulness he endures the scorn. He endures losing his own position to re- receive the throne. He, no doubt, his relationship with his father is, is severed and would have experienced just this awkward distance with his own dad that once he fought so loyally beside. We see this again throughout the scriptures as well, this willingness to sacrifice to receive even uh, suffering for the sake of Christ. And it reminds us, uh, thinking even of the the description of Moses in uh, Hebrews 11, a similar type of picture we have with Moses. We're told in Hebrews 11, 24, By faith Moses, when he was growing up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And I think we could very easily insert Jonathan's name there. By faith, Jonathan was also considering the the riches of the kingdom, the riches of royalty, the pleasures of of being in the palace upon the throne. He considered all of that as, as not comparable to the riches of Christ. He had set his eyes Upon the Lord. And in David he saw the Lord's anointed. And he was willing to sacrifice. And to suffer for the sake of Christ. And I believe Jonathan. Even now. In heaven rejoicing in the goodness of God. And the riches of of glory. Is certainly not regretting his decision. To sacrifice much. For the sake of the covenant faithfulness. And we see a picture of Christ here in many ways as well. Do we not? This, this picture of laying down one's rights. Of stepping aside from the throne that, that was yours. And being humiliated for the sake of your, the other covenant member. Hebrews, uh, sorry, Philippians 2 of course would, would describe Christ as, as not counting Equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He would, he would set that aside. He would humble himself. He would clothe himself in our humanity. And Christ would go to the cross of Calvary, considered to be even the curse of God himself, sacrificing himself for the covenant members to uphold the covenant gracious work of God that would be set upon us. We many times think of David as, a, as a, a wonderful example and illustration of Christ. But I think in many ways, Jonathan also serves that picture here. The willingness to sacrifice what would have been rightfully his. And we're actually told as Christians, as we are brought into the new covenant, brought into Christ, 
that, that has been granted to us, Paul says in Philippians 1, not only to believe, but it has been granted to suffer for the sake of Christ. And that all of those who desire to live a godly life will experience suffering. And so we shouldn't be surprised, Peter says, when the fiery trial comes upon you. Don't be surprised by it as though something strange were happening to you. You see, those who set their eyes upon Christ, those who set their eyes upon His faithfulness and His coming kingdom, His kingdom that is advancing, there will be opposition, there will be persecution, there will be suffering, there will be times when when you have to look at mom or dad in the face and say, I'm sorry, I think you're wrong and I will not Depart from the word of God or maybe losing that job or having to experience the brokenness of perhaps a child that that is not agreeing with you or wanting to to pull you away from your Christian convictions and you stand your ground. You're willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, for he has suffered for us. And in that way, we see the, the blessing of the covenant Christ has suffered for us that we might live by his wounds. We are healed. But now as those who've been made new, we also are called to share in the sufferings of Christ, Paul says. So we see a surpassing love. We see a sacrificial love. But we also see, lastly, a steadfast love and loyalty displayed in this covenant picture. It's steadfast. It's not swayed by the present circumstances. Sure, when David was the champion of Israel, the giant slayer, it would have been quite easy for Jonathan to be a faithful friend and companion to David. But now when David becomes the hunted, David becomes the outlaw, circumstances have changed. Will he forsake the covenant that he established? And we find a steadfastness. It's a steadfast love and loyalty, even when it may very well cost Jonathan his own life. He is steadfast. And it's so fascinating as you, as you look at, again, Jonathan and, uh, and how he is, is looking ahead to what he believes the Lord is going to do. There's even a plea from, from Jonathan to remember him. And they establish this agreement between their, their houses, their offspring. That David will show kindness in verse 14, if you look, uh, Jonathan, and we see the steadfast nature of this covenant. He says, may the Lord, this is just back into the second half of 13, uh, may the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. And then verse 14, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And you're thinking, Jonathan, what are you talking about? David is alone. He's about to be exiled out of Israel. He's about to be hunted like a wild animal. And Jonathan is saying, David, when the Lord cuts off every one of your enemies from the face of the earth, remember me. Remember my house, David. I want this to be a steadfast picture of covenant faithfulness. And we think, what is Jonathan seeing that nobody else is seeing around him? And it is that David has been called by the Lord as the anointed king. And he sees in David a man filled with the spirit of God. And he believes that in David and I would say even David's line, though Jonathan certainly couldn't fully understand how all of that would unfold. But he saw a kingdom 
an eternal kingdom that covers the earth as the water covers the sea. And Jonathan says, remember me, David. And of course, we know all of this is a wonderful picture and illustration of Christ, who is the offspring of David, the king of David's line, sitting on the throne of David now, his kingdom advancing. And Jonathan says, I don't want to align myself with the kingdom of this world. I want to align myself with the kingdom that is now coming and advancing. And that's where I want to invest myself. It's a steadfast love and It's an incredible thing to consider the fact that God has set his steadfast love upon us in Christ with a sort of love that is enduring. It is going to continue generation after generation when when all of the things of this world have passed away. God's covenant steadfast love upon you will endure in Christ. Though we should have been sworn enemies of His kingdom, he has invited us in and brought us near. Even thinking yesterday um, at my aunt's funeral and just the picture of of steadfast love. And uh, my uncle, um, sorry, anyways, um, just the picture of 60 years of marriage and 40 years of that, loving his wife in a wheelchair and caring for her in the strength of the Lord. and, And we... Even unbelievers look at that and say, wow, that's incredible. That's a a wonderful picture of steadfastness. But what we must realize is the reason that is meaningful to us is because it's a sliver. It's a small sliver of the reflection of a covenant-keeping God who has set his love upon us. This is what we are called into. And as we uh, bring this to a close here, I just want to turn quickly, if you'll go with me, to 2 Samuel 9, because I want, to see, want you to see an incredible, um, incredible just picture here that we see of, of this uh, steadfast love and the result that it has in David's life. Because when you put these things together, it, it is truly remarkable. So 2 Samuel 9, and David asks, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machur. No, I'm saying these wrong, but uh, bear with me. <laughs> um, the son of Amel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will store to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should have show regard for a dead dog such as I? And there it is. There's this incredible picture of the steadfast covenant, loyal love of God. You may think back even to the words of Jesus to the 
the Gentile woman who was not of Israel, and she came to Jesus asking to, um, to have her son healed. I believe I should have looked up the reference, but you remember the account where Jesus says, I've come for the house of Israel, not for the Gentiles, and she says, not for the, the dogs, actually, is what Jesus says. And, and uh, she responds, well, the dogs even can be nourished by the crumbs that fall from the the table and Jesus marvels and says that he has not seen such faith even in Israel and sets his mercy and kindness upon her and I think in that picture we have even in, in as we think of Mephibosheth and we think about the, the kindness of God set upon us, set upon those who were outside of the commonwealth of Israel, Paul says. We, we had no claim upon this covenant keeping God but he has set his Kindness, his steadfast love upon us, this surpassing love, a sacrificial love and steadfast love has been set upon us in Christ. We are brought in, though we should have been considered the enemies of God and cast off like lame Mephibosheth, we are brought in and counted as part of the family of God. And so I pray that, that you uh, have a sense of that in your heart this morning, this this said, this, this covenant loyal love of God set upon you in Christ that we see illustrated in the life of David and Jonathan. And if you're here this morning and you say, well, I don't know. I, I don't know if I am part of that covenant. I don't know if I have the, the covenant faithfulness of God set upon me through Christ. Well, when the people in Acts 2 ask Peter what they should do, we read that uh, in Acts 2.37, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so that is the call. If you say, well, what must I do? How do I experience this sort of covenant faithfulness of God? I want to be brought into that. I want to be able to say like David, your mercy and your goodness follow me. They pursue me all the days of my life. Well, repent of your sin. Be baptized. Put on that covenant sign. And, and Peter says the spirit of God will be given to you and you will be partakers of this promise. And if you profess faith this morning here this morning, then I urge you to hold fast to Christ. Do not be conformed to the spirit of this age. Consider it all as loss, even as Jonathan considered the kingdom of his father as loss for the sake of, of having Christ, of having the Lord's anointed and being brought into his kingdom. We are to also be renewed by the transforming of our mind, Paul says. We might discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable. You see, we're not working to keep God's love. We're not trying to pay him back somehow for what he has done. Rather, we are to abide in the covenant work of Christ, this love and steadfastness that Jesus has purchased through his cross and resurrection. And we repent, dying to Adam, rising again in Christ, and we are to abide in this love and then reciprocate back the same sort of love unto God, a love that is surpassing and loyal, that is sacrificial, that is steadfast. And when your soul is doubting and downcast, 
You can say like David, soul, why are you downcast within me? Hope in God. You preach the gospel to yourself. You say, soul, don't you know that that Christ is now your advocate, your mediator? Now he has set his love upon you, soul. Do not be downcast. He is not going to forsake his covenant. He is faithful. And you preach to yourself and you sing and you meditate upon the word of God and you gather with the saints that together we continually build ourselves up in this holy faith until our faith becomes sight and we see Christ himself standing before us. We cast ourselves down upon the ground, throwing all of our crowns before him, recognizing that any good we have done has been a good carried out in him. So let us pray and we'll uh, close there this morning. God in heaven, we thank you for these incredible pictures in the Old Testament, Lord. And Lord, we know that Christ tells his disciples that all scriptures, the the law and the prophets, the Psalms, they all were, were pointing to him. They all speak of him, whether it's through these types and shadows, these portraits. Lord, we see these incredible themes running throughout this love that you have indeed set upon us in Christ. Lord, help us to repent of sin that entangles, Lord, that is hostile towards you, that, that cost Christ his very life. Help us to, to see it for what it is and to forsake it and to renounce it and to hold fast to you with a love that is indeed surpassing all else. Lord, a love that is sacrificial and steadfast. Give us steadfastness in a day where it is so tempting to compromise, to cave in, that we might get along in the world. Lord, grant us strength, grant us boldness. Raise up a generation, Lord, of of heralds of the gospel, of women who will proclaim the truth of your word to their children and live out this love that Christ has for his church. God, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.